I'm John Crane. And I'm Bernie Crane. You're listening to the Jazz Session. With our dad, Jason Crane. Lesson one, basic hip. Welcome to the Jazz Session. I'm Jason Crane. This is episode 426 for November 15th, 2013. On today's show, in the interview segment, pianist Michael Weiss, and then a conversation with writer Sean H. Doyle about attitude in music. This episode of the Jazz Session is brought to you by Firehouse 12 Records, whose 2013 releases include Illusionary Sea, the debut recording of the Mary Halverson Septet, Life Carries Me This Way, pianist Myra Melford's first solo recording, and Navigation, a four-album set from the Taylor Hobynum Sextet and Seventet. The releases are available on CD, digital download, and on collector's edition vinyl formats. For more information, visit firehouse12records.com. Thanks to the following Kickstarter donors who helped make this season possible, Cheryl Rice, Dean Minderman, Andre Kinnear, CV, Michael Laubach, Jeff Cosgrove, Daryl Sean, Pamela Jackson, Carly Zimmerman, Terry Hinty, Aaron Stebel, Paul Sanwald, Wayne Stratz, Derek Dickens, Angus Grundy, Karen Jeanette, Ernesto Servini, Hal Smith, The Nocturne Jazz and Cocktail Room, Ashley Daneman, Robert Lieberman, DL Media, Justin J. Smith, Max Johnson, Kyle Quass, Andrew Durkin, Corey Weeds, Megan Jean Clay, Hal Wilkie, Mark Crawford, and Kareem Powell. We'll thank more Kickstarter donors in the next episode. Remember, you can become a member for $5 a month. It gets you MP3s and other exclusive content. This month, or this show, I should say, you'll get an MP3 by Michael Weiss from today's album, and also one from the Irene Sarah Quartet. If you're a Kickstarter donor, you use the same password that you had during the campaign. There are new MP3s there now, as I just mentioned, plus all the ones that have been posted there so far. And if you join for the $5 a month level, which you can do with the jazzsession.com slash join, I'll send you a password and you can get into that members-only page and download your content. Thanks to Randy White, who became a member since the last show. Please rate the show in iTunes. You can give it a rating up to five stars, and you can also leave a review. And when you do that, it just helps it rocket up the rankings so that people see it more easily. And don't forget, if you have a comment about today's show, just go to thejazzsession.com and leave it in the comment section under the show. You can also buy albums by Jazz Session guests by visiting the Jazz Session store, and when you do that, a portion of your purchase goes to benefit the show at no additional cost to you. As a matter of fact, you can go to the Jazz Session store and click on any of the albums, then you can buy anything you want. You can buy toilet paper or a yacht or a cruise missile or whatever you want, and a portion of the proceeds or of your purchase price at no additional cost to you will benefit the show. So uh, please consider doing that if you're an Amazon shopper. When I was in Detroit for the Jazz Festival, uh, my friend Mark Stryker connected me with Michael Weiss, a really talented piano player. And we're going to hear a track now from Michael's Soul Journey album and then my conversation recorded in Detroit this summer.
My guest is pianist and composer Michael Weiss. It's great to have you on the show. Thanks for being here. Glad to be here, Jason. Thanks for having me. We're recording this uh, at the 2013 Detroit Jazz Festival, where uh, in our timeline yesterday you performed uh, with a band a bunch of new music. Uh, talk a little bit about the new compositions before we dig back into the history a little bit. Uh, well, I have to admit they're not brand new, <laughs> uh, but uh, I'd probably say with every performance uh there's tweaking and adjusting and editing and rearranging. Uh, and, uh, uh, all the music is, is, uh, sort of multi-sectional. So it enables me to, uh, expand one section or, or move the pieces of the puzzle around as, as I'm so inspired, you know. Yeah, the one thing I noticed about your compositions was uh, that they were fairly complex. There's a lot of kind of intricate melodic work going on, a lot of kind of sectional playing. For example, yesterday the, the saxophonist was Wayne Escoffrey, and you and Wayne often had doubled lines between the saxophone and piano that you know seemed fairly intricate. Um, yes. Is that kind of a hallmark of your maybe your recent writing style, or has it always been part of your compositional uh, style? I suppose so. Uh, I composed at the piano, and the interpretation of the melody comes with the melody. So uh, I have a way of how I hear, kind of exact, somewhat exacting way of how I hear. There's not a lot of room of, of unfortunately, I suppose, of, of different interpretation. Uh, the, the small detail, the phrasing is, is, a, is a viable, uh, expressive uh, tool and it's important to me. So uh, I find myself playing the melodies that, that I write. And I, you know, uh, probably also uh, I've been influenced a lot by uh, pianist composers like Thelonious Monk, for example, who, who played me the melodies in unison with his saxophonist uh, most of the time. And I also, um, I read somewhere online a statement that you made about wanting to compose kind of beyond or outside of the vehicle for blowing uh, methodology that's often pretty common in jazz. You know, here's a head that is kind of a throwaway, and now we improvise on the chord changes, whereas you seem to be more interested in actually composing a melody that, first of all, will recur throughout the song and be used as the basis of improvisation. Is that a fair statement? Yes, yeah, absolutely. Um, I think... Uh... You know, the, uh, the history of the language of jazz has evolved with the, the song form, the popular song form of, of the twenties and thirties being the, the formal model of, of the, of the compositional component, uh, the basis of what improvisation is based on. This has been throughout the history of jazz. Uh, uh, but, uh, it's, if I say if one is so inspired to, uh, find other means of expression as a, as an improvised, as a jazz, as a musician, uh, beyond the constrictions of the, of improvising on a set chord progression of the song form, composition is where you have the means to do it. And, and, uh, Wayne Short is often quoted as his as how he says uh, 
composition is improvisation slowed down and improvisation is composition sped up. So I think that's another great example of, of his way of expressing the breaking down of barriers uh, between genres or, you know, let's get to, let's get to what music is about and all the different way, all the things you can, all different ways you can express yourself and all the different influences you can incorporate as, as, as they are, as they are naturally a part of you. And I realized that the, the things that I, I love of when I play Scriabin's piano music or Samuel Feinberg or Alexandrov or Chopin or, uh, or whoever that I don't have to say, oh, well, that's, that's that world. And now I'm functioning in the popular song form of the jazz world and never the twain shall meet. It's like, if these things that I'm hearing that I'm loving and this, uh, that I find a, a way to creatively express myself using that language, uh, here's how you do it. Here's the opportunity. Uh, so now, I, I can present a, a, a much more satisfying and fulfilling uh, expression in my music uh, through composition and improvisation instead of having to save it all for for those three choruses on this this song. You know, uh, all the room for development, and and you can think things through, and uh, and it's a much more uh, fulfilling uh, process. Uh, which is is different than than the in the moment improvising. There's a couple things about that that resonate with me. One is that I grew up uh, listening to both big band music, but also to progressive rock, like Yes and Genesis and King Crimson. Me, me too. And with that music, even when it's played live, it's played in, well, King Crimson a little less so, but Yes, ELP, Genesis, all those bands, it's played note for note like it is on the record. And for me, part of the joy of that music is I know 
every note, every fill, every chord change, every lyric, they all fit together in this piece. And it's just as thrilling for me to hear them over and over again, even though there's no there's no element of improvisation involved. I know when I listen to the song or if I go see a band, I'm going to hear what I've heard before, but there's something about that. There's something about being kind of deep into the music so that you know you know what's coming, but you understand the the nuances. That sounds to me a little bit like maybe what you're you're talking about. That it's not necessary to have, uh, and this is an is not an argument against improvisation, but that it's not necessary to have a completely new set of melodic and chordal information every single time in order to find music appealing or satisfying. Is that a fair thing to say? Yeah, sure. Uh, <clears throat> and. You know, when you're in the driver's seat as a composer, you have the the ability to to change, to move things around, to change things. Let's do it this way this time. Let's do it this way. Uh, and uh, I think that uh, having an element of surprise, having a lot of composition, it it takes. It, it, it takes the, the, the familiarity, the routine away from the listener. Like, okay, he's playing three choruses now. She's going to play choruses. And then they, then it's now it's his turn. And now it's his turn. And it's the same routine. Now this is, now it's not uh, just a, a limerick. Now it's a novel. And there's development in their plot lines and their, and, and you don't know what's going to happen next, but the the if a composition is <clears throat> developed well, there's a train of thought. There's there are ideas that are flowing. There's repetition. There's sequencing that that takes you from one place to another. That doesn't just drop you off in the middle of nowhere and then all of a sudden transport you to somewhere else, and you have no frame of reference. Uh, Things develop at a pace that the listener can comprehend and follow, and and the the elements of surprise and and subplots and and underlying things can develop uh, in in such a way that that carries the listener on a journey that they don't know where they're going, but they but they but they know that they they still have their feet on the ground. Improvisational element, a solo can occur in in unexpected places. Uh, 
where the soloist is now he's he's the narrator he's he's the a commentator on what's going on uh and and that 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 actor that character can come in in different places because it's not this set popular song form from beginning to end although i'm heavily influenced and and i'm rooted in the popular song form so even within an expanded composition any section in and of itself could be of of a, of a typical popular song form but it's not the end end all it it could be just be one section within a, a many sections um but i like the idea of inserting solos in different parts of of the composition so it's it's not and it's not it's not really deliberate it's just like we come to a place and what let's have let's have some some filigree let's let's have uh a uh, some improvisatory commentary on what on what we've established where we are here it might be i have one piece where uh there's a piano solo on the on the song form and then we go into this section and there's a coda at the end which is based on something that was in the introduction and that's now expanded and at the very end of the song that's where the saxophone solo is taking us out uh so uh it's it's interesting to to work with that kind of uh mindset the other thing that all of this reminds me of is um once on this show the saxophonist tim burns said that he sometimes gives an instruction to his band members that it's okay to not abandon the written material when it comes time to play your solo you don't have to think up an entirely new world at that moment it's okay to use the context we've already created sure. to improvise for the rest of this tune well hopefully you you have players that get it that 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 see understand their role as improvisers of you know it, it, when you're an actor your job is to is to uh find the way you through your your own life experience how to express what the writer or the director is looking for from this and what your role is in the whole the whole film uh and the same thing is with with a with a soloist what's your role here is it just every man for himself or, or to what degree is your solo serving the piece this is very important and I should say that he didn't mean that disparagingly toward the people he plays oh, yeah. with. He meant more that um, – I think he meant he was trying to take some of the pressure off the members of the band to feel like when they weren't playing writ the written material that now all of the pressure was on them to create the melodic and harmonic structure. And he was saying more, you know, it's o it's okay for us to continue to operate in this place. We don't – we don't have to get to the solo section and then just reinvent the universe. Again. I would think that would be your, that should be your jumping off point. That should be your reference point until you are, until you know and are so familiar and comfortable with the music that you can confidently go 
somewhere else, knowing how in your sensibilities, how what you're going to do serves in his relation to the piece. You know, you have to, you got to have a, if I think if you're honest, if you're an honest musician, that's how you're going to approach it. Now you are uh, kind of of that interesting generation that you got a chance to spend time both in New York and on the road with people who of the generation before you whose entire life was spent either on the road or they were able to play in clubs. And I'm, I'm thinking obviously particularly of guys like Johnny Griffin that you spent years and years with. And I wonder as someone who's kind of straddling these two worlds, this world now where it's that's really a very uncommon thing for a musician to experience to go on the road for a long time with an established uh, you know, major figure in the music. Uh, and then the generation before yours, where that was how you did it. You came up and, you know, maybe you apprenticed with a big band and you went on the road with a name and so on and so forth. You're kind of in this interesting place where you've had a chance to, to be in both of these worlds. And I wonder how your experience. The, wor the worlds of the working and the non-working. The non-working, right? <laughs> yes. The one that, a friend of mine recently said the jazz business is imaginary now. And I, so it was a real world and now it's a dream. But the, uh, I wonder how having that kind of road warrior background has influenced your the way you operate presently i mean the world is so different for a musician but i wonder how that informs even what you're doing today uh it is more difficult now to to develop artistically uh working less than before and i've always was aware that my my artistic growth was was spurred ahead by the five six night a week schedule and i mean it's obvious there would never we wouldn't have the charlie parker and the john coltrane's that we had if they were not playing with that type of regularity i mean that's that's where you do it that's how you do it you just simply can't be as attuned to what what you know, what you don't know, what you hear, what you, your aspirations, what, what you're striving for. You don't even know what that is if you're not working. It's, uh, it reminds me of, uh, I used to ski as a kid and, you know, once a, a week out of the year, you know, and I, every year I, I, by the end of the week, I just got back to about the level I was the year before. And that was it. And it was the same thing. You right. know, three more weeks, I'll, I'll advance, but it's, I'm done. Uh, so it's the same kind of thing. And, uh, it is a, it's a different, it is a different era. It was exhilarating and, and kind of a badge of honor in my own mind to be able to have that experience of, of, uh, performing, uh, with with players on such a high level for uh, a paying uh, captive audience uh night after night and i it was obvious this is and, and as you you could you could monitor your own development you could see how different ideas and inspirations uh came would come to you in different ways night after night and you just being so i mean you know why do why do all teams play 162 games a year. I mean, it's <laughs> and and even and with all those games, you know, 600 is a pretty good record. 
you know, six out of 10. <laughs> yeah. Uh, can you, so when you moved to New York, um, coming from, uh, Indiana, uh, one of the great early schools of jazz education, you, uh, after a while became pretty established at the star cafe. Am I remembering that? Yeah. Right? Um, and tell people about that place and what it was like. Oh, wow. Uh, let's see. After being in New York a few months, uh, I had a chance to join uh, John Hendricks and his group. And we toured. It was really my first tour, real touring uh, in this, all through the States. And to and Europe, not to interrupt you, but let's let's dig behind the magical phrase. I had a chance to join, which a lot of people do use, um, and I think uh, it leaves out the actual information of how something like that happens. So, can you just fill in the that gap of how did you go from okay, now I live in New York, and now I'm playing with John uh, Hendricks? I I met his current pianist, and we became friends, and had a lot of musical interest in common. And he was leaving, and he recommended me, and I auditioned, and and like. We left, a, you know, two days later for about <laughs> a six-week tour. At the end of the audition, they take your pass, ask for your passport. Just and your, about, uh, yeah. It was, right. it was. That's how it. Ha that's how that happened. Yeah. Uh, usually, you know, an, uh, a recommendation is is how those things sure. happen. Um, and then, uh, I guess, in the in the coming months uh, after coming back off the road with uh, John Hendricks. Uh, Junior Cook was playing regularly at the Star Cafe with a drummer from Baltimore named Harold White. And, uh. Tell folks who Junior Cook is. Uh, Junior Cook is, was, uh, one of the great tenor saxophonists of, of our music. Probably best known for his five years with Horace Silver's Quintet with Blue Mitchell on the front line. Before that, he played with Dizzy. Uh, for a little while, and uh, and after that, he he co-led a group with Woody Shaw and Lewis Hayes, and then uh, he had a long association with Bill Hardman, the trumpet player, and Junior worked with Elvin and uh, a, a lot of great players over the years. But anyway, uh, Junior was on my fr my first jazz record that I had horses blowing the blues away and. Um, so this was a, a, a great fertile scene as a young player to be on this, on this, at this jam session and being around. So, uh, after a short period of time, I became the house pianist with Junior there and, uh, Clifford Barbaro, the drummer, played with us and Ed Howard on bass and, uh, it was one, sometimes two, sometimes three nights a week uh and uh uh we played junior played a, a great re repertoire and uh you know i was a, a transcriber and anything i wanted to learn i just i listened to it and write it out and figure it out and uh we developed a a, a a wonderful repertoire of monk tunes and tad dameron and train and junior liked a lot of those obscure standards that train recorded uh uh time was uh uh if there is someone lovelier than you so like prestige period you know all these very obscure standards um so we uh, developed a, a great uh relationship 
uh, with Junior, and he was the kind of guy who really led by example and was was uh, very supportive and was all about the music, you know. And for, I was in heaven. I had that, you know, I had really very few gigs to speak of, just picking up things I could, but this was sort of my anchor. And the Star Cafe, every, you know, a lot of who's who musicians would come down there. Uh, where, I, where was it? It was on the corner of 23rd Street and 7th Avenue, just about, just off that corner. Kind of a bar, supper club? It was a bar. Yeah, it was a bar, funky yeah. bar. And, and what was funny about the place is like, it wasn't a jazz club. It wasn't a, it was just, there were a, a few different social scenes coexisting peacefully in this same space. There was a pool table directly in front of the bandstand <laughs> and there was a jukebox and we kind of shared the space with, with this bar scene that had its own life and its own characters and, uh, pretty, pretty soulful place. Uh, but, uh, Lou Donaldson heard me there and started to use me from hearing me playing there. Uh, uh, Tommy Turrentine was, uh, a frequent, a frequenting, uh, musician who played trumpet and played good piano too. Uh, I saw Pharaoh Saunders in there. I saw Sonny Fortune, uh, probably a lot of other people I'm forgetting, but it was a uh, it was a vibrant scene. I mean, as far as the the jam session part of it was was really crazy, and you know, people would come in off the street and just pull their horn out, not knowing how long the song had been going on up to that point, or even what the song was. You know, was the bar owner just that? Was he a jazz fan, or what? I mean, how did it even come to be that all of this music was happening in this place? You if know, you know, I have no idea how it got started. Uh the owner was a nice guy, the bartender, and uh, I don't know how it started, but there was this, there was this little spinet, funky piano in there, and it was great, you know. It yeah. was drums and and it was a scene. It was it was uh, it was very exciting. I mean, being a young player in New York at that time was was great. And, uh, and I'm sorry, what years are we talking about now? I should have uh, oh, said that. Oh, yeah, in the beginning. that was. Uh, the fall of 1982. Okay. And it went on till mid early 1984, I think. Okay. Um, but it, I started to work with Lou Donaldson and, and, uh, I was playing with Slide Hampton a little bit then. And then, uh, and then working with Junior, then I, I got some gigs and was able to use Junior get junior on the gig and then i from that i began working with his quintet with uh bill hardman mickey tucker was their regular pianist and i don't know if that precipitate if he moved to australia at that time all i know is i became the pianist with the group we did a a really grueling and great but uh exhilarating uh European tour in the fall of uh, 1986, Walter Booker and Leroy Williams, and uh, I was in heaven. I mean, I, to me, this was—I mean, I, I didn't hadn't made any records yet, although I did. Well, I did by just then, but uh, I mean, it, it was—it was—it wasn't any big time 
stuff, but uh, I felt like I had made it. You know, it was very, very exciting. And then, and then uh, a few months later, I joined Johnny Griffith's group. Before we uh, dig into that period, I know that if if I'm remembering correctly, the uh, most recent time you were here at the Detroit Jazz Festival, you led a band that was paying tribute to Horace Silver. Is that right? Or was that maybe a time before, a couple times ago? In 2000, I brought a septet, but in 2010, I did the Horace Silver tribute. Yeah. And was this, uh, was your... Your passion for Horace Silver, did that precede actually playing with one of his bandmates, or did sure. that come out of that? Yeah. No, well, like I said, uh, Blowing the Blues Away is my first jazz right. record when That's I was right. 15, and it's oh, kind of similar to your background. Uh, I grew up in the suburbs of Dallas, Texas, and had no exposure to jazz as a child. I, I grew up on the Beatles and, and, and Led Zeppelin. That was kind of, that was sort of exciting in its own way too, because all those, you know, we look back on, on this music, uh, of being from a, you know, uh, an earlier era, but to being, to be around when those records were new, when they came out, when I was in high school, Inner Visions came out. You know, it was a new record. Yeah. And Ed Headhunters, Headhunters was a new record. And, uh, light as a feather and mysterious traveler these would these just came out and and inner mounting flame or i mean also the this was the music of the time it wasn't a music of an early it was the now it was the music of now so uh very very exciting so horace silver's mu- that music was recorded 15 years before that so i had that and i had Thad Jones, Mel Lewis, and and the wonderful arranging, composing intricacies and uh, of of Thad's writing, and then there's this other stuff going on at the same time, and just soaking it all up like a sponge, and not, you know, you just you just you just want you just go for it. You don't think about what 
belongs to what because you you know in high school you're not working you're not playing you just you're just soaking it all up but as i played and 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 learned more in college and kind of went in certain directions that that spoke to me that appealed to me the most uh these earlier very important you know uh, influences were kind of falling by the wayside and it wasn't until relatively recently let's say in the last six 16 18 years or something that i figured i i I found a way to incorporate it all into my own uh expression the all these different things and influences seemed like they belonged in different rooms uh and thanks to wayne shorter uh and, and music that i uh wasn't paying attention to when it first came out but uh came some things uh, heard when they did come out things things that i revisited later uh, was a, a incredible role model for how to how to circumvent genre genre delineations or whatever and make make that look so ridiculous you know how ridiculous that is yeah you know what's the the elements of music are are the same (laughs) where wherever it's found you know what makes interesting music and how you you know we all take what we what we like what we learn from different things and i think if once once you have a once it's like he's the guy he's the guy that gives you the green light you know go yeah he's he represents like a such a wonderful balance there's there's the arts and crafts right the 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 intellect and the the spirit and and how those two things work together the the craft and the and the unknown and the spirit the the art and the, the emotion and as as under as as much as he may choose to to underplay it or not to acknowledge it, which is obviously his his right to do so, the level of craftsmanship is so superb and so incredible. You know that I mean you can't really have you can't have one without the other if if you want to make great art. And man, it's there, and that's why, for me, he's such a a, a great inspiration.
I want to uh, just dig back in the past a little bit more before we come back to the present and uh, talk about Johnny Griffin, who I think probably in this day and age for a lot of younger players is someone they may not be as familiar with. Will you say just a little bit about him and then talk about your time with Johnny? Well, Johnny Griffin uh, was a high school prodigy at uh, one of the great uh, high schools in the 1940s for 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 musicians under the direction of Captain Walter Diet in Chicago, on the south side of Chicago, whose program produced dozens of world-famous uh, jazz musicians. And Johnny was a precocious uh, youngster who just, uh, I mean, you can see it in his eyes in the high school picture in 1943, 44, uh, that, <laughs> you know, the, the, the wild child. I mean, <laughs> he and Wilbur Campbell get in all kinds of trouble. But, they, I mean, the, the, the zest, you know, the energy, you know, just pure energy that he grabbed the saxophone, alto, uh, joined Lionel Hampton's band as a teenager, uh, uh, and then switched to tenor. And then leaving Lionel Hampton, he and Joe Morris formed a band, one of the very first sort of rhythm and blues jazz slash jazz groups that were actually started at Atlantic Records. Uh, Johnny was, uh, he was the gatekeeper in jam sessions in the south side of Chicago. You got to deal with Johnny Griffin on the bandstand. And uh, he came to New York in the 40s with Joe Morris and made friends with Thelonious Monk and Elmo Hope. And they palled around together and, and Bud Powell. That was Griffin, the three pianists. That was that was there. That was a team, uh, and then Johnny came back, went back to Chicago, and uh, came to New York and uh, joined Thelonious Monk's quartet at the Five Spot, and also formed a partnership with uh, Eddie Lockjaw Davis. Had a great two tenor group that made several great records. Uh, he was a recording artist for Riverside. Then he decided he was going to get out of town and move to Europe and didn't return from 1963 until 1978. While he was in Europe, he was playing with Kenny Clark's Francie Bolland's big band and uh, Gun for Hire and, and, and had a wonderful uh, life in Europe. And always, and then stayed in Europe with his home in France until he died. In 1978, he began returning regularly to the United States to tour, at, uh, following the heels of Dexter Gordon, who had a great resurgence, great uh, big career boost. Uh, and when he made this record, Homecoming, with Woody Shaw, that was at the Vanguard. This was like one, probably the most popular record in jazz at the time when it came out. It was so exciting. Uh, so Johnny also came back to the United States, formed a quartet uh, that went through a few incarnations, and uh, I joined his band in 1987. <laughs> 
each one of these bands that you find yourself in, each one of these horn players that you find yourself with is a person associated with, I mean, just a ridiculous who's who of piano players. Um, I mean, you're, you're kind of tapping directly into this amazing lineage of the piano players who created so much of the language that we know now. I mean, guys like Bud Powell and Horace Silver, and I mean, you're, you're occupying that exact same space with these guys who played with them. And, uh, it, I can only imagine, I mean, did you have a, a concept at those times, and it sounds like you did, of kind of the weight of all that playing that had come before you that these guys had been a part of? I didn't really think of it in those terms. Sure. Uh, I mean, I I learned the language from records like everybody does because I, I wasn't able to hear Bud Powell and Horace Silver and Monk in person, obviously. Uh but played enough with with my peers and with other players better than me uh, over the years in that language to 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 have a concept at least and uh, I guess developed to a point where those uh, horn players that I got to work with uh, Thought I was on the uh, had a certain level of proficiency to for them to be comfortable having me on the bandstand with them, uh, working with players on that level and uh, being inspired to express myself on on a similar uh, level of, of of integrity and and, and uh, content. Uh, but I was never thinking about the piano chairs that I was occupying by of, of other players. Sure. Uh, talking about your own career as a, as a leader and a recording artist, you recorded your first album in the mid eighties, as you mentioned earlier. And one thing, uh, a lot of, there are a lot of younger musicians who come on this show. And nowadays it seems to be often the case. And the joke I always make is that after the, their first class on their first day of music school, they go into the studio and record their first album. And, um, but, there's something about, I mean, although I make a, I, I mean that kind of pejoratively now, there is kind of a history of that almost being what happens. I mean, people showed up and recorded pretty quickly. I mean, a lot of the classic records that we listen to now were recorded by guys who were 18, 19, 20 years old at the time they were making them. I wonder how you knew it was time for you to make your first record. But they, but they, they may have been young, but they established themselves. Oh, absolutely. Through the ranks, world. through yeah. the ranks with, uh, because, yeah, Lee Morgan was sixteen or was seventeen when he started to record, but he he was playing in Dizzy's band, and you know he was ready. Uh, very few uh, unknown or or musicians who who hadn't uh, developed a track record as a sideman uh, were re- were being asked to record. Uh, and also, to uh, I mean, there was very, very little by comparison self-produced. There was a little bit, but there were a lot of labels operating at that time. Sure. I, I'm going to mention something you uh, add. Something you mentioned about the the weight or or, or f- feeling about uh, being in the piano chair of of somebody's group or thinking about the pianist before you. One example where that might resonate have resonated strongly with me was recording at Rudy Van Gelder's and playing that piano. When I went 
there were two pianos. He had a newer piano and, and, and the piano. And I was playing both. And I, I was about. And this was for what occasion? That was for my first for recording your first record, for Crisscross. Right? Okay. And, uh, I mean, you, first you just walk in and you go, <laughs> you, that vaulted <laughs> ceiling is like, oh my God, this is, this is the place. And then, you know, sitting down to play that instrument and it's just, it was amazing. And then now, like, it's a date to play that piano with headphones. It's, it's like a twilight zone moment because you're, you're inside a blue note record. You're right. literally in the, you, you look around and you're, oh my, what is this? Oh, it's the groove of a blue note record of, of the, where the needle, I'm in, I'm next to the needle. I'm in the groove of a blue note record. That's amazing. <laughs> what are all those waves? Oh, that's the sound waves of, that's a, you know, it's, it was, that was scary. Now, <laughs> I mean, you're, you, 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 every sound, the, the, how you hear yourself playing that instrument is like, now that was that was intimidating. Yeah. Uh, so how did you that decide when it was time to go and make a record? Again, I was I was recommended to the label mm. uh by Kenny Washington who I was playing with uh a lot at that time. And Kenny had made a couple of records uh with other people on the on the label and uh I'm I'm like a 10 Two two, so I'm like, there's probably five hundred, more than five hundred records on that label. Now I was number twenty two, so still kind of in the early days of the label. This is uh, pre CD. Uh, so again, that's how that happened by recommendation. I mean, sure. And I, I, I had a, had some good repertoire to choose from. I wasn't, and and I didn't really. The composing just, uh, I'd mess around with a few little things. I didn't, I wasn't really carrying anything through to fruition and really wasn't working or, or developing as a composer at all then. But I, now that I got a record date, I told myself, you're just going to be an ass if you don't have at least one original composition. <laughs> so I just kind of in a fluster, I just sat down at the piano. I just played. Uh, a, a something like straight through it was like it was like pure it was like the best kind of composition where you, you improvise and uh, improvise and i got about 16 bars in and then i just uh, fizzled like now now i gotta carry that through and and uh it was it was uh it was funny it was it was that's where the work came in. It's like, oh, man, now you gotta you gotta close it out now right <laughs> <laughs> uh so, so I did. So I was happy to have a, a tune on that record. But it's funny, I didn't really re revisit composing in earnest till 10 years later almost. And why was that just because you were working and there was only so much time in the day or what, why was that? No, uh, I don't know. The, it's like the, the bug didn't hit me. The inspiration, I, I have yeah. no answer for that. Yeah. It's so interesting because it seems like once it did, you, I mean, now you're, the way you approach composition seems to make it a vital, a central component of who you are as a musician. I guess so. Uh, I'll tell you what happened. Uh, in the mid nineties, there was a, a young crop of, of players kind of came on the scene who were 
very, very talented and had a, a great grasp of the language, uh, that I, I, I started to use on my gigs and, and had tremendous energy and, and played on such a fresh and mature level. It was very inspiring for me. Who are some of the folks we're talking about? Well, uh, the drummer, Joe Farnsworth and Eric Alexander and, uh, Steve Davis on trombone. Mm-hmm. These guys were, uh, were just, uh, getting their feet wet in New York at that, but, but they played on a, a great level and had a great energy and, uh, inspired me to, in, in a lot of ways musically. So I formed a sextet, uh, and I started writing some tunes, uh, and we, I wanted to have a, a collaborative group that, that different members would contribute compositions. And, uh, that group became one for all. <laughs> they, yeah. Their sextet. And then I went my own way. Uh, but th- I think, uh, playing with those, my, my playing relationship with some of these guys, uh, inspired me to compose. That's sort of how it happened. But they were just tunes. And then right around that time, I heard Wayne play uh, at the Blue Note. He was touring, uh, following the recording of High Life. And he, one of the pieces he had was a new arrangement of a song I was very familiar with from his days with the messengers called Children of the Night. It, uh, it just floored me. And I was like, I was completely just blown away. Just, you know, it took my breath away. And I was, uh, his pianist for that tour and I were schoolmates at Indiana, Jim Beard. And I said, Jim, let me, can I see that? Yes, all these notes on the page. Let me, can I see that? And I saw all this music and all this detail and all this, like, it looked, it looked as, as, as dense as, uh, uh, Scriabin late sonata, you know, like, oh my God. And I said, we're going to get together. And I, and I let it slide. I forgot. And, and then it came back to it and, uh, li- lived in that record. And, uh, that was it. That was the, like the light bulb moment for me. So I went back to these compositions that I had written and fleshed them out. Uh, and it was, it was a great like, creative uh, spurt of energy that, that, you know, push me in another direction.
just uh, we're kind of getting toward the close here. Um, and just in the last month before we're recording this, uh, Marion McPartland passed away, who's one of the great, mm-hmm. I think, piano players, but certainly one of the great advocates for the music and had the longest running radio show almost of any kind, but certainly in the arts. Um, and you had a chance to, to play with her and to be yeah. in that setting. And uh, I wonder if you just have any memories of that as we come toward the end. Here. Yeah, it was uh, no reason why I should not be impressed with with a, a musician of her caliber and, and track record and so forth. But certainly someone of, of, of who came up of, of her era uh, to have the, the 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 fortitude and the and the the open mind to have a who's who of 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 every kind of uh, genre style or whatever to to improvise together on two pianos in the studio for an, for a radio audience that's just a you know tremendous that, I mean that's it's really something, and so I guess when you when you talk about you know how I've, I've felt about you know piano legacy behind me, I mean that was another moment too, of sitting at the piano next to her, and I'm thinking, what am I going to you know thinking, what do I want to do? I know I'm going to probably I'm going to have to play something by myself. We're going to play something together. You know, how do I want to prepare myself for this? Yet. I don't think, I mean, she's, this is, this is like her living room. I'm, I'm in her house now. <laughs> she doesn't have to prepare anything yet. She's ready for anything. Uh, I, there's an old, old, I, is an old standard, uh, you can depend on me. Oh, sure, yeah. That, uh, I had a recording of, uh, it might have been, yeah, it was the Lunsford band. There's a Trummy Young or somebody sang that tune. And I just, I love that. So I, I said, you know, she said, oh, I, I don't think I've played that in quite some time, but sure, let's do it, you know. <laughs> and it was like, it was incredible. Yeah, I always loved those moments or loved those moments on her show. And she would say, yeah, I'm not sure I remember it. And then just, you know, shred on it. Yeah. <laughs> Completely. Yeah. 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 So that was, that was a great experience. I'm glad I was able to do that. And, uh, just one other, um, pianist. I feel like a lot, in a lot of this interview, I mean, I've tried to f- ask you about you, but you also have this direct connection with a lot of people who I just think it's important that we tell stories about. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of whom who's uh, not gone, but, um, is, uh, Barry Harris. Yeah. And you and Barry worked together on a, in a couple interesting ways, both on his own stuff, but you also worked together on, uh, a Bud Powell, uh, box set, uh, kind of a- analyzing all the pieces on that, right? Am I remembering that? Yeah. Right? We are, I mean, we're, I feel like we're partners and, uh, and, and, uh, a looser or, or in, in, in a, in a, in interpretation of the term, however any, the listening audience wants. I, I feel like we're soul brothers in the pursuit of beauty in harmony and, and melody. And I've known Barry a very long time and we, we talk on the phone all the time. He at his piano, 
in Nika's house and me at my piano and we're we're having great conversations about ways to approach uh musical problems and uh he's forever the the, the he's he's forever the student himself and uh, uh it, my relationship with Barry has has been one of the most uh, ex- uh, important to me in, in in my career. We've we've played together on two piano concerts, uh, and and uh, collaborated on a number of different things. Uh, I've recently wrote out all his compositions for him, and uh, and yes, we we both. Uh, were recorded giving our extemporaneous comments during uh, listening to all of Bud Powell's recorded output on Verve. And uh, and that was a lot of fun, yeah. My guest is the pianist and composer Michael Weiss. It's been a real pleasure talking with you. Thanks a lot for doing it. Thanks for having me. That's music from Michael Weiss and his album Soul Journey. And now on to the second segment of the show, a conversation with my friend Sean Doyle. Uh, Sean H. Doyle's a writer. He's a recovering musician from Brooklyn. He has played in countless bands that nobody's ever heard of and spent a lot of time in Ford Econoline vans and sleeping on floors, uh, living by the kindness of others. His writing has appeared in Volume 1 Brooklyn, The Rumpus, Monkey Bicycle, and other places nice enough to publish him. He can be found on Twitter at Sean H. Doyle, and his website is SeanHDoyle.com. Uh, Sean's a guy that I met online. He's an extremely talented writer. You should definitely get a copy of his uh, small little chapbook called The Day Walt Disney Died, which is uh, prose pieces, uh, remembrances of his life, and it's really wonderful. Uh, and just check out SeanHDoyle.com for lots and lots of great content. Sean and I were chatting about Electric Miles Davis, and I was really enjoying chatting with him about it on Twitter and thought it would make an interesting segment of the show. So without any further ado, Sean H. Doyle. So, Sean, you and I were talking online about attitude, and you were sending me a bunch of, uh, I guess, punk and hardcore tracks that I was really, really digging. And you were telling me that, as kind of as much as the music, that it's the attitude communicated in that music that really appeals to you. And you said the same thing carried over to you for jazz, that the people that you liked in jazz, and I think you referenced Mingus particularly, 
were examples of that kind of attitude. Can you, can you just say more about that? What is it that reaches out to you and, and grabs you? I think what reaches out to me is I think what reaches out to most people about music that they're drawn to. Like you can feel in music, in poetry, you look at a painting, you can feel, you can find the heartbeat of the person who's creating it. And they're not putting any kind of filter around that heartbeat. They're just letting it come out. And I think the appeal for punk rock for me when I was really young was that these bands were just, it, it could be easily said they were filled with angst, but at the same time, there was sorrow. There were all these other things involved in it. And so it kind of informed that musical direction. And Mingus was the same way. I mean, you think about Mingus and all the things that he went through in his life. He filtered it all through his composition and the way that he informed people with his music. You know, it's just it's a powerful medium. It's it's a medium that kind of takes away in some ways. It takes away class and all these other things. And if you just go with heart, you can't really go wrong. I guess for me, one of the things that that kind of grabbed me about what you were saying was that I think what stops you know, if I can speak in a ambiguous generalization here, I think what stops a lot of people from feeling the way you feel about punk, from feeling that about jazz, is that they feel like there's some barrier to them understanding the music first. Like with punk, you know, here's the three chords that we know, and we're going to play fast and loud, and it's all right there on the surface. I think people feel with jazz like that if they're not one of the initiated, they're not allowed or maybe even not able to get that kind of thing. And I wonder, how, was that anything you ever had to get past? Was that ever, Did you ever feel like, well, I just I don't even know if I can listen to jazz, or did it never have that, that problem for you? I think in the very beginning when I first got turned on to jazz, it was, uh, I didn't really make the connection right away. You know, and I think that the first jazz that I was ever really turned on to, um, I had read... I'd read a book about about Hendrix and and there was a thing where Hendrix was talking about Coltrane. And so I went out as a kid and bought like one of those like, you know, Columbia Records like 699 cassettes of like the best of John Coltrane and I remember walking around on a cassette Walkman listening to it and and going in my head I see this, I get this but I don't fully grasp it yet. And it, and I think it took me a while, but I wasn't afraid to immerse myself in it because I'd already immersed myself in different musical forms to allow it to take hold in me anyway. And again, that's that heartbeat thing. If it, if it spoke to me, even in the tiniest voice, I was going to give it a much wider door to work through. And and then, the, the honestly, the biggest jazz album that really, and a lot of people don't want to call it a jazz album, but it was that Billy Cobham Spectrum album with Tommy Bolin on it. Cause I was a huge Tommy Bolin fan. I mean, he was this amazing, incredible guitar player that we only had for this short period of time. And on that record, he showed me so much about nuance and phrasing and legato and all these different things fitting inside these pockets of noise that Cobham and all these other guys were putting together. And that also had that same attitude. I mean, that Spectrum album is to me is, is a punk rock fusion record. You know, there's little bits of funk in it, but when you really think about it, there are these repetitive patterns. So with punk rock, what you were saying, three chords, you beat them to death for three minutes as fast as you can. It's the same concept. It's it's almost Gordon Lishian in a way. <laughs> it's repetition until there's difference, and then the difference is what grabs you. And I think a lot of those fusion records like that and the Alphonse Muzan record that he was on, they were doing those same type of things. You ride a groove until it speaks to you to change it. And there's a lot of jazz that was like that for me.
I really like that idea that you were just talking about of you know repetition until there's difference. And uh, I think unlike most jazz people, people who are kind of immersed in the jazz world in the same way that I have been professionally, I came to a lot of the music in a very backwards way, and a lot of it through prog rock. I think the first Miles Davis album I ever actually owned was the 70s live at Carnegie Hall, where it's just, you know, like two one-hour sets that are mostly just rumbling, pounding rhythms and miles every few minutes, you know, remembering to play a note. But it's this is incredible, incredibly powerful music. And it really, that, that phrase that, you know, repetition until there's difference, I think it's powerful in a way that maybe sometimes, I don't know, we take for granted, like how, how strong that can be. Well, we all, I think we all take it for granted in every aspect of art or even just living. Like, we don't think about the fact that we walk to the same grocery store twice a week. And we only remember that we walk to that grocery store when we see something different on the way. It's the same type of thing. Um, and there are a lot of bands, like modern punk rock bands, that kind of took that whole idea. Like, there's a band out of D.C. in Baltimore called Lungfish. And they had, like, a 20-year career. And uh, a lot of people... If, if a layman or somebody straight off the street, if I took them and put them in a room and put three Lungfish records on repeat, they would probably go, this is the same song over and over again. Even though it's not. <laughs> but you immerse yourself in it enough or you allow it to seep into your pores enough, you find the difference. And when you find the difference, anytime you repeat something over and over again, it becomes a spiritual experience. You know, you, be, you, you start to elevate, you start to open up, you start to notice the things that you're not seeing. And like, that Miles at Carnegie thing is is that example. It's definitely that example. Um, and that's actually, like, you and I were talking on Twitter even again last night. We were talking about the Fillmore East stuff. And I said that, you know, Electric Miles is my favorite Miles. And the reason why Electric Miles is my favorite Miles is for what you just described. There's just this wall of sound behind him. And that wall of sound takes up so much frequency that when Miles decides to blow his horn, it's like getting punched in the face. And unfortunately, and this might go a little further for your listeners than anybody really wants to go, but, you know, physical pain or the act of feeling something physical is what reminds us that we're here in this physical realm. So when you hear something that pierces through something that's been putting you in this other space, again, it's opening you up. So, I mean, I can't deny that music is a spiritual thing. I mean, the Bad Brains, who to me were this incredible punk rock band who also played reggae, they started out as a jazz fusion band. And they were the fastest thing that anybody had ever heard. And they were just ramshackle and crazy, but it was precise. Even though it sounded like it was crazy, it was very precise. And they continued as they evolved. They continued to do these things, and they brought in more elements. And, you know, with the reggae element and with all these other things. And it's the same type of prospect. It's repetition until you find that other spot that opens you up.
I mean, I think we're on a very similar wavelength there. I, I tend to find myself also liking the periods of famous artists that are not necessarily the famous periods. I mean, I like a lot of late Coltrane. Miles Electric stuff is also my favorite stuff. Uh, you know, I like Crimson from 73 to 74 more than anything else that that band ever did when it was just loud and they would do 25-minute improvs in the middle of a set and then play, you know, cat food and go home. Right. And, you know, that's kind of... I really... I love that idea of... Well, and I struggle a little bit with it because the... And I don't want to get into the one of these nowadays, the kids don't know things, but we definitely got into a place, I feel like, in our culture where... Um, although everything is available, a lot of it is available in small, bite-sized chunks. And I know I, for one, have gotten away from just sitting and listening to a record. I mean, like, this, I was, what we were referring to last night, I was live-tweeting the Fillmore record. Well, the fact that I was live-tweeting it is a little sad in and of itself. But the, the point of that is that I actually sat down and listened to an entire album, which I just don't do that much anymore, and which is absolutely required for the effect of the things that we're talking about to be felt, I, I think, at least. I'd, I'd be interested in your reaction. I absolutely agree with you. I mean, even just what I was saying earlier about that first Coltrane tape, walking around with it in headphones and a Walkman, how can you feel something if you just go, I mean, and I'm not bad-mouthing Spotify, but if you go on Spotify and you just, like, hit the link to listen to one song, you don't get the full, you don't get the full feeling of what it was like. And I, I'm 42 years old, so for me, I miss getting, like, double gatefold LPs, and not just to roll my joints on them, but, you know, because... <laughs> Because there's there was some sort of magic. Like when I first bought Bitches Brew, it was that double gatefold LP. It's the artwork. It's everything. People don't read liner notes anymore because there aren't any. When they released that Coltrane Live at the Village Vanguard box set, I didn't have any money, but I still went out and bought the CD box set because it came with that beautiful put together book. It came with all these incredible liner notes about who played on anything. You're not getting that if you go to YouTube and just listen to a clip or you go to Spotify and just listen to a clip. So you're missing out on this other part of the experience. That doesn't mean that 30 years from now, when you and I are in a nursing home talking about this stuff and the kids taking care of us are like, oh, those old guys are talking about liner notes. What are those? That's fine. That's, that's for their generation to decide. But for my generation, I miss that stuff. I definitely miss it. And with punk rock especially, so many bands informed their fans of their politics or their ideas or their feelings about gender, or their feelings about feminism, their feelings about class division through their liner notes. So many bands would put in these handwritten manifestos and that stuff. It's not there anymore. I mean, there's a lot of underground bands who do it now. And yeah, you can use a Tumblr, you can use these other things to inform your fans. But I guess what I'm missing is that physical thing in my hands. I like to be able to touch something and look at something and take it in at my own time and my own leisure. Do you think now that we have, uh, and I want to come back to the, the attitude thing in a second, but I'm, I'm wondering what your opinion is now that we have access to everything, essentially, do you think it's easier or harder to find the connections between the branches? Um, I think it's lazier. And I, when I'm saying lazier, I think it's you don't have to do as much work to find stuff out. And if you don't have to do as much work, why waste a tiny effort? It was different, you know. Black Flag went through so many different members. And at one point, they had a drummer named Chuck Biscuits who had played in DOA out of Canada. And Chuck Biscuits went on years later to play drums with Glenn Danzig when he was doing his solo records. But 
Chuck Biscuits was never on an actual Black Flag record. I'd only seen footage or heard really bad board recordings. And for 20 years, I was looking for recordings of him because he's an incredible drummer. The one thing the Internet did for me was give me decent recording of Black Flag with Chuck Biscuits. And they were an entirely different band when they actually had a drummer that was as brutal and as straightforward as he was. And so in some ways, it's good. I still had to wait for it and do the work, but it just doesn't feel like you have to do as much research anymore. You don't have to hunt around or go to record stores to find things. You can just click a couple of links, you know, and there it is. And I don't know if that's easier or better. I just know that for me, I like doing the work. It meant I was in a project. It made me want to keep going further. So I'm kind of springing this on you a little bit, but if given the conversations that you and I have had online and even go, going back to as recently as last night with the Fillmore thing, if you were going to recommend some bands, you know, kind of outside of the jazz world for folks to check out who are into music like that Miles at the Fillmore or like the other things that we've been talking about in the jazz world, are there a couple places you could tell people to start? You've definitely shared some stuff with me. I wonder if there's a couple places you'd tell people to start. Uh, I would go with I would go with this new current in you know version of the Swans of Swans that are happening right now. Um, I don't know if anybody's familiar with their work in the 80s. It was really grating and industrial and very uh, very hard to get around. And it was very it was very hard. It was a gut punch. And now they've become this this giant, almost psychedelic thing where like they have these 32-minute songs that are brilliant and filled with all this noise. And again, it's the repetition thing. They just there's so much breadth to what they're doing. There's so much space to what they're doing. And it might not make a lot of people happy. They're like, oh, this is one note droning for 32 minutes. But there are so many other things going on while that one note is droning for 32 minutes. So definitely check out the newer Swan stuff. Uh, their double record, The Seer, is incredible. It's probably my favorite record from the last couple of years. There's a band from Syracuse. They're really young. They have this amazing thing. They're called Perfect Pussy. Um, and they sound like, they sound like Husker Du in this really beautiful, noisy way. And then at the same time, they have this, this underhum in their music of, of this beautiful positivity. And they're, they're great. Uh, they have a cassette of all things, but you could go to like their band camp and download the cassette and then they'll mail you the cassette. They've only recorded four songs that I've heard so far, but they're, they're, they're amazing. They're so good. There's a lot of screeching. There's a lot of noise. And give me a couple of punk rock classics. If, if you're going to, someone who said, I've never heard a single punk rock record before and you're going to hand them the thing or a couple things that you think, well, here's where I'd start. 
I'd start with the Stooges Funhouse record. Funhouse record is probably for me the one record I cannot live without. I, I, I've given at least 40 copies of that record away throughout my lifetime because if somebody doesn't have it, I just hand it to them, just take this one, I'll get another. Um, from front to back, it's, you know, it's, it's a brilliant record. It's, and again, it's another band that believes in repetition. And they were also, you know, they were into Sun Ra, they were into, they were into Ornette Coleman, they were into Coltrane, they were into all that stuff. As much as they were into like those garage rock bands from the 60s. And you can't go wrong with Iggy Pop screaming. You, you can never <laughs> go wrong with that. And their original rhythm section was great. And he lived um, down the street from Charlie Parker, although not at the same time. So. Right, exactly. <laughs> exactly. So, you know, the Stooges Funhouse is definitely a record that I think everybody should have if they want to check out like the, high, the idea of punk rock and what it is. Um, more modern stuff. Uh, I think... I think the Adverts were a great punk rock band. Um, they wrote really brilliant pop songs. Um, they were very, uh, they were kind of kinkish in a strange way. Some people might get mad at me for that, but they just wrote really brilliant pop songs. The melodies are really great. Um, Crossing the Red Sea is a good record there to check out. Um, there's always the Ruts, and the Ruts had a very reggae type thing going on at the same time, but it wasn't like overbearing. Um, they wrote great songs. And then as far as like American bands, American bands, well, you could always listen to Black Flag, but everybody listens to Black Flag. <laughs> um, and everybody has their theories about which Black Flag version they like the most. Like, oh, do I like them with, do I, do I like them with uh, Keith Morris singing? Do I like them with Henry Rollins singing? I just liked them, again, we'll tie it back to, I like them for their attitude. You know, the attitude of, this is what we're feeling. This is what's coming out of us. And again, they're a band that progressed, and they started doing like fusion-type jazz excursions. Um, they had a record called "The Process of Reading, Weeding Out." That's an entire instrumental record where they're just going for it. There's just no real form to it at all. Um, and then, if you can't handle longer songs, you can always go to the Minutemen. Um, and the late D. Boone uh, definitely taught me a lot about 
thinking outside of things. Um, and Mike Watt, who's still in, around, he's an, incre- he's an incredible bass player. He has like 40 projects going on at once. And he's actually playing with the Stooges now. So any Minutemen record will do you well. into like kind of hyperactive punk rock there was a band called the inbred from west virginia and they were definitely a fusion infused band they were young kids though but they were very very musical um i think their records were put out by alternative tentacles which was jello biafra's label i think he still has it i don't know i don't pay attention to him because i wasn't really a dead kennedy's fan (gasps) oops oops i told a secret That's great, man. Well, it's been such a pleasure talking to you about this and getting to to branch out into a wider world, and I thank you for taking the time to do it. Absolutely, man. It was my pleasure. My thanks to Sean Doyle and to Michael Weiss for being on this episode of The Jazz Session. Thanks also to the Respect Sextet for the theme music, Dave Rabel for the logo. Don't forget you can become a member for 5 bucks a month and get two free MP3s with every show plus other bonus content as available. You can do that by going to thejazzsession.com slash join. If you liked the music that you heard today, you can purchase it in the store. Just go to thejazzsession.com and click on Store. And remember that once you've clicked on one of those Amazon links, you can buy anything you want to, and a small portion of your purchase price will benefit the Jazz Session at no additional cost to you. I also write Wikipedia pages and press releases and bios for artists of all kinds, and if you're interested in that, please visit cranewrites.com, where you can see samples and rates for my work, and if you need something like that, please do contact me. Thanks again for listening. I'm so glad that you're out there listening to the show and interacting with me on Twitter at Jason D. Crane and following the show on Facebook, facebook.com slash the jazz session. Come back next time for another conversation about jazz on the jazz session.
Thank, Thank you, you for, for listening, listening everybody. everybody. Bye. Bye. Bye.